This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. One of the things that, uh, that is an interesting part of our culture is the more kids that you have, which I have five, but the more kids that you have, uh, the more people start feeling sorry for you, you know. Uh, I've noticed that, that, you know, they start with one and they're like, oh, it's so exciting. And then uh, two, they're kind of like, um, did you guys mean to do that? Or, you know, what? Then three, they're kind of making comments about how your life is going to change. Four, they just feel depressed for you. Five, they're just kind of like, I don't know if you know what you're doing. You know, uh, how are you going to handle all of this? And then as it goes up from there, I'm sure they're just basically telling you to, to give up on life. So when you have, when you have that, the more comments. And, and the comments don't even make sense. Now, listen, I, don't, I, I walk into a, a, a grocery store, and they see that I have five kids, and they immediately make comments or they say something like, you know, oh, bless your heart, or, man, you're a busy guy. And, and, and they say it to me right in front of my kids. That's the part that bothers me the most is Every time somebody says that right in front of my kids, I, I immediately think of my upbringing. If you didn't know, I was involved in, uh, I was involved in, involved like it was something I chose to be a part of. Um, I, I had a, a large family, and, and my mom and dad, we had six boys. And I remember comments, them getting comments, and me standing right there like, hey, listen, does, you know, is, am, can we talk about me like I'm not some big burden, right? Uh, and the reality of seeing my kids in my life, I don't want them to think. And every time I see comments, I try to I try to say something like, oh, yeah, they're an amazing blessing. I wouldn't know what to do without without them in my life. The reality of that kind of culture that we live in um, is is easy for us to go, oh, yeah, that's that's funny. But the other side of it is we celebrate um, some things that, uh, that I think we shouldn't celebrate. Every time we get raises, we freak out like this is the best thing in the world. Like if we get a raise in finances, it is a sure sign of God's blessing and gift in our life. None of us, when somebody says, I got a raise, is like, wow, do you know how that happened? You know? Or are you sure you can handle that? Do you know the responsibility it is to have more money? You, you never think in those terms. And so you pursue money and you pursue raises as if it's a sign of God's gift and blessing. And you look at the actual signs of God's gift and blessing and you call them curses. And weights and responsibilities. The realities of that are so embedded in this culture for us to even think about a raise as a responsibility versus a child is like mind-blowing. And that's what this text is going to address today. It's going to talk about child life. And 
the deceptions of wealth. And as we go into stuff like that, it's easy for us to check out of these kinds of things until it really pushes into what is it that you feel a huge weight and responsibility and if I have this child or if we have this child it's going to ruin my marriage it's going to ruin my chances at a career it's going to ruin this it's going to ruin that and I'll tell you, this child's going to stand in the way of all the the external blessings what's that showing to you is the realities of what you really want desire worship long for you see in this time as these first century Jewish believed that, uh, that what was going to happen is a Messiah was going to come and that Messiah was going to usher in a new age or what they called it an age to come. So they believed that they lived in a present age, but the Messiah who was going to come was going to mark this new age or this age to come. And that that Messiah was going to come in power and it was going to overthrow, he was going to overthrow the governments and he was going to establish his power and he was going to rule from the throne and he was going to destroy all evil and he was going to make all things new and it was going to be this earthly establishment of the kingdom. Now listen, it isn't till, it isn't till now time. It isn't until recent history that uh, a Christian faith has developed another ending to the story. I I'll say that we have believed in kind of a heaven that floats out there and that when we die or that we get raptured or whatever we think, we're going to be go we're going to fly away to a another place and this whole earth is going to be burnt up. Right? This is a new reality of this, which makes us treat this earth in a way in which God is going to forsake and abandon it. So who cares about it? But if you look at the realities of the promises of God, that he's not going to forsake his creation and he is returning and he's going to make all things new. And Revelation says that that city is going to come and make its place here on earth. And this earth is going to be rid of sin and all things are going to be made new. And as the people of God, we get to enjoy the truth of that this, this reality is coming. That the Messiah will come, and he has come, and he's promised to return, and he's going to make all things new again. Now with this understanding, and this understanding of how God is going to restore all things, you could see how these people were waiting and longing and yearning for that. But it also causes a question. Um, and Jesus has been teaching about the realities of this kingdom and that he is the Messiah. And he's been showing and revealing what his kingdom looks like. That it's without sin and it's, it's without sickness. And, it's, and there is this, this upside downness, if you will, or right side upness, whatever you want to call it. I think the kingdom of God is right side up. We're the ones upside down, right? And... Everything that he's teaching and displaying is showing this reality of the kingdom and that he is king. And so it, it draws out this question. If this kingdom is coming, if all things are ma being made new, how do I get into that kingdom? What do I have to do to make sure 
I'm a part of that kingdom. That could apply a lot to the questions that are going through our hearts and the hearts of people in this world. What do I have to do to earn my way into the kingdom? What, what do I have to do? Is it the ones who are prosperous? Is it the ones who, who are prestigious? Is it the ones who have power? Is it the ones who, uh, who, who uh, show that they ha- can follow the moral law? What is it that I can do to, to have confidence that when this kingdom is restored and made new, that I get to be a part of it? And this text today is going to deal with this reality, but I think it's going to push against our own kingdoms. Let's stand together as we read Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 34. And as I'm reading, let's remember this is God's word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and he and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, and he, because he had great, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we left everything we had and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid 
And, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered, and other chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The story opens up after last week talking about marriage, the covenant of marriage. What we realized quickly last week is that an attack on marriage is not really an attack on the love of a husband and wife. It's an attack on the gospel and the covenant that God makes with his people. And the realities that we're going to see today is that as these children, and I want to I make sure you understand that this word for children is word infant. It, it actually means someone like younger than one who is still helplessly dependent upon their parents. These children would be brought to a rabbi in order to be blessed. And Jesus, these, these, these people were bringing their infants to Jesus to be blessed. And his disciples are in kingdom mission mode. They are in, we are following this Messiah. They've pronounced that he is the Messiah. And, and he is important. And he is busy. And he does great miracles. And we get to be on his mission. And so in order to accomplish this great mission, which in which they keep fighting over who's going to be the greatest and most important and most powerful, they keep wanting to figure out a way to work their way up in this kingdom. And so in order to put their kind of team together, they're thinking, who's going to be the best for this team, for this kingdom? And on this mission mode, as Jesus is teaching, here comes infants. And you can just think in, in, in just kind of your own terms. But if you're putting a team together, you're not picking infants, you know? You're not picking babies. Why? They're helpless. They don't bring anything to the table. And they're completely dependent. So they're going, look, Jesus loves you kind of deal. But he doesn't have time for you. And Jesus gets indignant. This word indignant is not just a, you know, uh, uh, a happy Word, I mean, this word indignant carries with it a feeling of strong displeasure. I mean, he was mad, irritated, heated. Jesus is angry. And what he does is he tells his disciples to let the children come to him. Let the children come to him, and in him telling his disciples to let the children come to him, he makes a strong statement in verse 15. He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So not only does he say, let the children come, he says, the children are your example. 
The children are the entrance points. The, the children are the way you enter into the kingdom of God. So he takes these helpless, dependent children and says, let them be your teacher of how to enter the kingdom of God. And he shows his disciples that helplessness and dependence are required in entering God's kingdom. Now, here's, here's what we like to do when we take texts like this. What we like to do, to do is kind of say, let's look at the virtues of a child. And obviously, Jesus need, is teaching about the virtues of a child. They are innocent, and they are humble, and they are cute, and they've got chubby cheeks, and they are this and that, and they just have this kind of, just kind of ignorant belief that just everything mom and dad say is true and they try to just put up childishness as the virtues in which we should follow but believe me on this Jesus is not lifting up a virtue of childishness he's not saying be innocent because if you know anything about a child they're not innocent that's not true about a child I mean, from the moment they come out of the womb, selfishness is at the core of their being. Everything they do is only thinking of self. I've never had a child go, Dad, you're tired. You need to go sleep for a while. Right? It's all about me and my wants. And so humility and selflessness is not at the heart of a child. Innocence is not at the heart of a child. Humility is not at the heart of a child. But what is at the heart of a child is I cannot do anything without the help of my parents. I am helpless and I am dependent. And that's the only kingdom value the very thing that kept them away the very thing that that the disciples were trying to keep them away think of this children have nothing to offer to the kingdom of god they're not seen in religious circles of that day but let's take it out of that day they're not seen in religious circles or in any circle in our day as bringing any value to society matter of fact we are doing all that we can to eliminate these children because they ruin our careers and our lives. They don't bring anything to the table. And so for us to see through the eyes of these disciples, you would go, yeah, why would they bring them into this Messiah's kingdom? And here's Jesus saying, look, unless you, unless you see helplessness and dependence upon the Father as a, a deep virtue of the kingdom, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. And if you take that example and flow it into the next story, you could understand why they are so shocked that there's a man who has morality and money and he's a good dude to put on your team. He's a good dude to get in your kingdom, right? He's rich. 
He's got a lot of money and he's got a lot of morality. He's got a lot of respect. But if you look at the story previous, the helpless and dependent get the very blessing and hand of God upon them. And the moral and the wealthy walk away sorrowful. It flows right into the next story where a man who is a rich young ruler, and listen to me, don't get in your mind that this rich young ruler is prideful like the Pharisees, because this is not the case for this story. This is a man who is coming humbly. Look at how he comes to Jesus. He comes and runs and kneels before Jesus. He's not coming to test. He's not coming to put him to the test. He's not coming to try to disprove. He's coming and kneeling before Jesus and he calls him good. He says, good teacher, what must I do? There's the question. What must I do to enter into the kingdom? And Jesus says to him, well, why do you call me good? Okay, we'll address that in a minute. But that response is mind-boggling if you don't see the heart here. No one is good except God alone. And then he says, you, know, you already know the commandments. What is this? What is this? This is this idea of going, you already know. You already have education. You already have the laws down. You already know. And what does he say? He gives to him, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, if you know anything about the laws, you know that's not all the laws. Is it interesting that Jesus starts with law number six and goes law six, seven, eight, and nine, murder, adultery, theft, perjury. He adds an extra one with defraud. That's another one that he's saying this is a good, he hasn't defraud. And then he goes back to five and said, honoring your parents. So he picks all of these things that are good moral things to do and when he says these commands the man goes I've done all of these things why was it that Jesus omits verse uh, command one through four and number ten why is it that Jesus omits the first four commandments and number ten or did he or could he have been speaking to the very nature of, ver of the first four commandments in don't put any other gods before me, don't worship any other idols, and don't take the Lord's name in vain and honor the Sabbath, and then number 10 in covetousness, and could he have summed all of those up in saying to the man, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me me and could he have been addressing his taking the Lord's name in vain when he said why do you call me good only God is good the reality is he called him good moral teacher but he didn't see him as God so calling Jesus a good moral teacher was taking God's name in vain and the realities of him saying that and confronting that 
hits the road even more when he says, why don't you go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor and come and follow me? Because he's speaking to the very heart of a covetousness person who pursues after money, who dishonors the Sabbath by working, 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 and working, and worshiping other gods by worshiping money. You can't serve God and money. Could he be calling him to the idolatry of his heart that is outflowing in his riches, but is making everybody else want to be him, even his disciples? And you look at this, and you realize God I mean, Jesus is speaking this to this rich young ruler. And verse 21 shows us the heart in which Jesus says it. He says it to him in verse 21. He speaks to this man in love. He said this to him, loving him. This is not a confrontation. This is not a, look at, you're worshiping other idols. This is a heart of love exposing the heart of a man who's worshiping other gods. And inside of that, the Bible says the man walks away sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of possessions. Jesus takes this opportunity to, to go aside with his disciples and begin to teach them about the entrance into the kingdom of God and how difficult it is for someone to enter into the kingdom of God that has lots of wealth. How can we rejoice in a raise when it could be keeping us away from entrance into the kingdom of God? How could we celebrate so quickly the responsibility of more money when there's more scriptures that warn us against the trap of the idolatry of money than the blessing of children. Have we made for ourselves in this culture an acceptable idol that the pursuit of money is a sign of spirituality? And Jesus teaches his disciples and calls them and calls them children. Look at what he says to them. This is an amazing thing. After he shows them earlier how you enter the kingdom of God, he calls his own disciples children. Don't skip over this. Children, he says to them. And it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God when you have it's more difficult to enter into the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And here's the reason why, church, wealth is a deceptive comfort. It's a deceptive comfort. And, 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 and scripture continues to prove this, but I want you to think about these things because anything that offers you comfort, but it is deceptive, money is one of those things. Money provides for us false security. Money blinds us of our deepest needs because if we have it, we think we have all that we need. If we don't have it, we don't think we have what we need. Money 
causes us and calls us to turn to it rather than turn to God for divine help and resource. Money is where we tie where we tie much of our identity we find in our bank account investments positions possessions job titles we find in that who we are in this world many of us are content with riches or hear me on this the pursuit of riches there's many of us in this room who would uh, disconnect ourselves from this teaching because we don't have money. But let me warn you of something. I've seen the poorest people in the world worship money. Why? Because all they can think about is what their life will be when they have it. And they spend their whole life pursuing it. And they spend all of their time believing if they could just have it, they will find hope and rest and peace and joy and provision and comfort. All the things that should only be found in Christ, we believe, will happen when we find money. And sometimes, sometimes it's even more than just having money. We believe if we have money, it will prove ourselves to the world. It will impress our friends and relatives. It will make us feel good about ourselves and show how much we are better than everybody else. Listen, church. If you hear me saying that money is evil, you, like the disciples, are missing the point. Having money is not evil, but when money has you, you're trapped. You're trapped. And the reality is, even when this man had money, isn't it amazing that what we look at what Jesus asking this man to do with his money, we see as absurd what is the man, what does Jesus say? Go burn all your money. It's wicked. No. He tells the man, be generous and give it away. And bless others and care for the poor. And we're like, that's absurd. Why? Because those who have money... Scripture says bear a higher responsibility with their stewardship of that money. And what I mean by stewardship is generosity. My question comes to not how much money you have, but how generous are you with it? I mean, many of us cannot even get over the thought or the hurdle that when Dave stands up here and says it's time to give, we're going, there it is again. They just want my money, my money. They just want my money. Let's just get past this reality of going, no, I don't want your money, but I want you to worship God with your money. And I want you to be obedient and generous. Isn't it amazing that we see Jesus calling this man into Christ-like example of saying, here's how you use your money, give it away. And we're thinking, that's so, so hard. See, what Jesus was doing here, showing them that money is a deceptive comfort 
And I think we as a church should, should take a moment to hear a challenge from this and maybe spend time this week in front of your budget if you have one. Asking God, do I have this money that you've given to me or does this money have me? Does this have me? And I'm going to tell you this. You will not come to that answer by you saying, yeah, I gave a few bucks here and there. The question will only be answered by Jesus revealing to you by his spirit your heart. And then there's another window to that that the Bible says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So Jesus is going to have to show you your heart. And the way he's going to give you a window into that is the way you make war on greed and covetousness in your heart is by getting money and giving it away. It doesn't mean don't pay your bills. It doesn't mean don't get raises. It doesn't mean pay, don't work hard. It means some of you are trapped into the false comfort of worship of money. And I'm going to tell you this. In our country, one of the richest countries in the world, what we're going to see is people walking away sorrowfully from the gospel because it's coming a time where the cost of being follower of Christ could come at the cost of our checkbooks. And the realities of that is there will be people who will find it too painful to give up money to follow Christ. Right now... We're trapped into the deception of it. But unless we see the hardships and the call to this, and I believe that unless we wage war against this, we will find ourselves walking away sorrowfully. Notice this. After these two illustrations, the disciples respond how I believe many of us in this room could and probably are. They ask Jesus this question. Okay. A baby enters, a rich dude who's moral and respected walks away sorrowfully. It's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Who could be saved? They look at Jesus and go, who's going to ever be saved? How is this ever going to happen? They are so astonished. Isn't it amazing that verse 24 says the disciples were amazed? Wow! Is basically what they're saying. Verse 26 says the disciples were astonished. What? Verse 28 says they're confused. Hold on a minute. Clarify this, please. Verse 32 says they're amazed and fearful. What is going to happen? How are we going to ever be saved? You see, this reality is the disciples are hearing this, and it's so foreign to everything they thought and believed and walked in. Their mentality is, if this is true, nobody can be saved. And Jesus' answer is amazing. He says, uh, with man, nothing is impossible, but with God, all things are 
impossible. Isn't it amazing that what Jesus does is not point them to something they have to do to be saved? Because what they saw is, it is impossible to save myself. And Jesus says, now you're asking the right question. Now you're on the right path. Now you understand your helplessness. Now you know you can't save yourself. And now I can show you where your hope lies. It is not in your works, in your finances, in your prestige, in your power, or your position. The only way you can be saved is if God does a powerful work. And isn't it amazing that he goes right from saying with God all things are possible to predicting his death, burial, and resurrection resurrection and he looks at them and he says listen we're going to Jerusalem I'm going to go to the cross they're going to spit on me they're going to beat me they're going to bruise me they're going to put me on a cross but I'm going to rise again isn't it amazing that they're saying how is it that somebody who's strong and powerful and a grown man how is it that they could become like an infant and a little teeny baby I can't do it I can't even wrap my head around it dependent and helpless everything in me wants to take care of myself how can I do this and Jesus says well there is one who is fully independent and all good in and of himself and perfect in his community and he left all of that and became a helpless dependent little baby Jesus didn't just ask them to be like a child he became a child who is it that had all the riches in the world who followed all the laws who is it that did everything morally right and followed every commandment and had all the possessions and wealth in the world and second corinthians 8 9 says for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich for your sake he became poor so that in his poverty poverty you might become rich who is it the one that did all the things that were right who really followed the moral law and really gave all of his riches away to the poor so that in him they could become rich. It's Jesus. His work on the cross. Oh yes, church. It is impossible for you to save yourself. But with God, all things are possible. When you listen to a message like this, the realities of your own heart are confronted. Many of you sorrowfully walk away from following Jesus because it's too hard because you're finding comfort in other things. And you're saying, why is this so hard? I really want this. Why couldn't Jesus just give me a bunch of things to do? Why do I have to be helpless and dependent upon his sovereignty and work? Why do I have to, why do I have to follow him and give him this helpless? Why do I have to find my identity and all who I am and who he is? Why can't he just say, do this and do this and give a little bit here? I don't really want him I just want a list of rules. And we are desperately disappointed 
when we find out that it wasn't until the place where the disciples goes, how is this possible that Jesus says, now you've asked the right question. Unless God sent his son Jesus, made himself poor, that in him you would find riches. then your heart and your desires and everything in you is prone to self. When we ask the question, how do I enter the kingdom of God? Isn't it amazing that when we ask that question, many people would give answers like, well, how much do you pray? How much do you work? How much do you do this? How much do you do this? Where's your life? Well, let's judge your life based upon your works. And if you're a good enough person and you do enough religious works and you do enough things, then you enter the kingdom of God. And rarely, seldom do you hear people fully dependent upon God's grace to say, how do I know? How do I enter? How do I become a part of this kingdom? He's my father. And if his work is not enough and his word is not true, I have no hope. And the realities of this push into how we live our lives every day. It begs us to ask this question. Are you living as a kingdom citizen? Or are you distracted by the things in this world that offer you false comfort? The things of this world that are promising you life apart from God. The things that you hope in, the things that you desire. And every time Jesus confronts the very realities of your heart instead of falling helplessly and dependently upon his work you walk away sorrowfully saying that's too hard to do matter of fact it's not just too hard to do it's impossible church what is it what is it that you really want? What is it that makes you anxious? What is it that really defines you? What is it that really drives your hopes and longings? Who is it? What is it? An easy one for us to look at is money because the text brings it out. And church, I hope that some of you see how often and how much you value and treasure the things of this world. And that today the Spirit of God would leave you in a place of complete child helplessness and dependence. And from the bottoms of our hearts we would cry out, Save us. Help us. I need you. I, I want to be accused of something as a pastor, and I get accused of it lot, a lot, and I just kind of embrace the fact that I think this is a good ministry to have. 
the end of my messages, my prayer is that I leave you with nothing but Christ. And something in us longs for more than that. But my prayer is that I leave you in a place of complete helplessness and longing and dependence for Jesus to work and do his thing. Can we pray? Lord, I, I admit that this text pierces to the very core of me. And as I've been studying, your spirit has been meddling in my business. Father, I I admit, confess my desire for comforts in this world and things that can satisfy. And Father, it's when those things are gone and when you've called me to repent and even walk away from things that could be good or seem to be good, that I realize that you protected me from my idols. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room whose hearts long for the comforts of money, for finding their identity and hope in themselves, their position, the relationships where they live, what they do. Father, our hearts are idol factories. We are continually making things to worship and to adore. But today I pray, Father, that your spirit would start or continue to dig into the very depths of our hearts that we would not be satisfied. And Lord, there's some in this room that you are calling by your spirit to leave some very good things that have them trapped. And I pray that they would joyfully walk away from those things seeking your blessing and guidance rather than sorrowfully walking away from you because you're not on board with their, their comforts. And so, Lord, I ask that you, would, that you would work, that you would move by your Spirit. We need your help in here, God. These words will fall flat unless your Spirit goes to work. So right now I'm asking, God, that you would go to the deepest recesses of our hearts, that you would reveal the areas of us that are, are seeking other things, that it's not just we need this or we have to have this or we want this, and if we get this, we'll be satisfied. What really is there is that through these things, you're showing us that we're longing for and seeking after other things. God, I pray that you've given us money that we would see it as a means and a way to live in alignment with your kingdom live faithful stewards generously live with hearts of, of giving and, 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 and taking care of others that we would live as a people who steward money rather than our slaves to money 
God, if there's any other idolatries in our hearts, which I know that there is, God, I pray that you would show us what it means to steward relationships, to live in, uh, at work and do work without finding our identity. God, let us continually come before you and let your spirit show us. Let us kneel down at your feet and let us know that your spirit is at work and that as we lay everything down before you, just as you told your disciples, that we're going to find all that we need in you, that even in this world, you're going to bless us and care for us and and walk with us even in the midst of persecution and Lord that all we find is in following you and Lord I pray that today we would hear come and follow me depend on me follow me Lord as we come to this table would you would you only Let us be satisfied in the fact that as we partake of this bread and drink of this cup, we're remembering that you you are the one who only perfectly did all things right, who had all the riches, has all the riches of this world and left that, went into poverty and that in you we became rich. you became an infant, that you came and lived dependent upon your Father, that you didn't just call us into something, but you fully modeled us and gave to us the power and the means to do it. We admit today we need you. And church, as we come to this table today, what we are admitting is that we need him and that he is the only one that satisfies. And church, if you don't follow submit your life to Jesus today I wouldn't want you to come to this table I wouldn't want you to do something that is not true of you but if you are a child of God who has been saved by his grace then I pray that you come and rejoice in his work rather than yours that you admit your dependence and helplessness without him that his spirit will work in you. The tables are open. We're going to sing together and we're going to respond in generosity. Church, let's respond.